Today, the message is entitled, The Fruit of the Spirit, Love. My uh, desire, my uh, purpose for uh, this is we're going to be looking over the next few weeks the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit as we saw last time. It talks about a singular fruit of the Spirit and then lists a number of things that are a part of, of that. Uh, today we're going to take a look at love. In the future we'll take a look at other aspects that's been listed. In English the problem is, is that we have a very uh, incapable way of expressing ourselves when it comes to love. We have to use love and then do a modifier. Um, and then even love, we, we misuse. i give you an example. We'll talk about that I love chocolate. Well, in English, that is not a proper expression. You can't love a thing. You can like a thing. So the proper English is I like chocolate. But we will use the word love for a number of things. And then usually when we think about love, we kind of place that in the little uh, warm and fuzzy pitter-patter, oh, I, I, I just can't breathe when I see him or her kind of thing about love. Now the Greeks, on the other hand, had a different and several different words for love. M most of you know them, and I'll quickly list them. One is eros, it's the where we get the erotic love, it's, it's, I guess, in today's world, would be lust. Uh, the problem with using the term lust is we kind of have a negative connotation of that. But it's that I love you because I get something back physically for it. And then the other is philo, philo which uh, is brotherly love. And we even have a city called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And that expresses the love between comrades or, or brothers. And then another word, and I'm not, since I'm not a Greek uh, expert, I think it's pronounced storge, S-T-O-R-G-E. It is the love amongst family members. Uh, that, that It is natural that a, a parent loves their child or the child loves their cousins or whatever, and, and the Greeks had a word for that. And then the, the last that's used most often in the New Testament is agape or agape. It is, and because of, of teaching by others, when we think of that word, we think of godly love. And while it is true that's the type of love that God has for us, it's better thought of as I, emo I don't emotionally get this pitter-patter, I, through my mind and my choice, choose to love you. And in God's form, he chooses to love us, not because we can give him anything back, but because he has made a choice to love us. And so the term here in the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is that I'm choosing to love you. Now, we're going to go through this, and again, part of my reason for going through this slowly is I want us to become fruit inspectors. Now, don't hear me when I say fruit inspector by saying, oh, you want us to judge one another. No, I want you to inspect your own fruit. 
I want you to be able to take a look at the scriptures, and when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you look at your life and say, am I producing fruit? Is that fruit starting to bud? Is it, is it green and not ripe? Uh, have the flowers fallen off? Where am I in the, the status of producing fruit of the Spirit? But my job is not to see how your fruit is, the job is to see how my fruit is being produced and so that I can then determine where I stand with the Lord and how far I need to go or, or whatever. So let's take a look at what the Scriptures talk about love when it comes to love and the fruit of the Spirit. In 1 John, we are told, by the disciple in, in John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. This is the disciple writing who Jesus loved. When jo John wrote his gospel, he never said, I was Jesus' favorite. He just said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John is going to be an expert on love because he's going to have received it from the Lord, and he's going to now communicate what Jesus was talking about. And so in verse 11, it says this, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. Okay, this isn't something like, okay, we got you to become a believer. Now here's some secret things you got to do. No, right up front, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So Paul, right off the saying, just because you're in a family relationship doesn't guarantee love. As a matter of fact, the first murder performed was in a family context because Cain, uh, either through jealousy or hatred or whatever, uh, murdered his brother. And then Paul is going to follow that up and say, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We're going to be talking about love but we also want you to understand that sometimes your love is not going to be reciprocated, and especially when it comes to the world. As a matter of fact, the world's just going to be irritated at you. So it says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we have love, because we love the brethren. We can quickly go past that, but notice it says, here's a quick test of whether you're a believer. Do you love the people that God has called? If you don't, you might need to start checking your spiritual relationship. Because this is what we know, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Not because we're going to love the brethren. Not because we've made it our New Year's resolution to love the brethren. That we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. Kind of a strong slap. If you're not loving your brothers and sisters, then you're, you're abiding in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So again, bang right in the face. If you're not loving, you can pretty much check off you're not a believer. And again, this isn't a matter of, oh, are you loving me? It's, am I loving you? It's my fruit being inspected by me. 
We know love by this, that it had warm fuzzies for us. Now, I don't think my, my Bible certainly doesn't say that. My Bible says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John is saying, we had a need, and that need was we were enslaved to sin and on a pathway to hell. But because of the love of God and the love of Christ, he changed that by dying for us. The love wasn't, oh, I think so much of you, it's I saw a need and I fulfilled it. But he also then says that we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. And there are times, both whether it's romantically or in our family or best friends or country, we will say that we love X so much that I'm willing to die for you. And that takes great sacrifice. And I don't want to diminish it. Because quite frankly, there are some times I would go, well, let me think about it. Do I really love the person that much to die for you? But John is saying, we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for one another. But sometimes it's easier because it's one act of selflessness than what he's going to follow up with. But whoever has the world's good. Now, he's not talking about people who are poor. He's not talking about people who are just getting by. He's talking about people who have the world's goods, but see his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of God abide in him? What did Jesus do? Jesus saw a need in our lives, and he took action. And if you see your brother in need financially, and you have the capability of solving that need, and closing your heart and saying, I choose not to, that's not love. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us, not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now, talk is cheap. And sometimes, you know, there's even movies about it, how, how especially men will have difficulty professing their love for someone and how they'll stumble all over and, and, the, and the woman is just waiting for him to say, I love you. But it seems even more hard to not just say the words, but to do the action. So John isn't saying, oh, let's just go around church after church is over and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's not the point. It's do you show the actions of love? If you tell me you love me and then say all manner of evil and vile things and then slap me in the face, I'm going to have a hard time believing that you love me. Let us not love with tongue and with word but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are the, the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. John is saying, again, that when we conduct ourselves in this way, that when we show and express love for the brethren, that our heart will know it. So again, 
I don't know your heart, only God does. So my point is not to inspect, again, not to inspect your fruit, but to inspect mine, to see if my heart assures me, or am I lying to myself and to you when I say that I love you? John further in this same book, in uh, chapter 4, starting with verse 7, he says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Again, a test to see where you are spiritually. We are to love one another because God is, because God loves. His love is from God. And so, in essence, what John is saying is, you are incapable of loving like God loves unless you have his spirit in you to love like God loves. And if you do that, then you are born of God. And you know God. So often we will hear people talk about who God is. And he is father and provider and uh, healer and all these things. But just in your life, if people were to describe you, and all they were to say was, well... He teaches at such such a place. He's been a student. Um, he's married, has you know, three point two children. Um, you know that uh, he's really good at um, cricket. You know, whatever the thing may be. All of a sudden, you're starting to think, I don't know this guy, or you don't know him, because all you're telling me is what he does. But God is love. And so if you leave out a big portion of who God is, then maybe you just don't know him. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, God's, we can tell that God loves us because of what he did through Christ. He saw a need and provided it. And not only did we go from slavery and death, but it transformed us into life. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He's going, we didn't, God doesn't love us because we started out loving God. God was the initial actor in the love. And if we want to be like God, then we need to be the loving people in the fellowship of believers and not wait for other people to say, well, I'll love him if he loves me. No, God didn't wait for us to love him. He loved us. And then in response to his love, we love. And John is saying, don't wait for others to love you before you start loving, because that's not God's love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, notice it says something here. It didn't say, for God so loved you that you ought to love one another. For God so loved us. Now, how we tend to express this verse is not per se biblically accurate. We tend to say, because God loved me, I'm going to love you. 
No, because God loved me and you. I'm going to love you. Which means if I don't love you, then I'm choosing not to love people that God loves. If God found it permissible to love y'all, then I should, if I'm bearing that fruit, to love y'all because he loves you. In family relationships, oftentimes, people will be in the family that you're not all that wild about. But it wasn't your choice. They're in the family. Kind of the same way here. I may not think that God made a wise decision choosing you to love, but he did. If God loves you, then if I'm no God, then I'm going to love you because he loved you. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You think this is a roundabout of way of saying you can't see God. There's nothing really you can do for God. You can express your praise and your adoration, but God doesn't need you. So how do you express that love of God adequately? Because you can't see him, touch him, wrap your arms around him and say, God, you know, you're a wonderful guy and I just, I just love you. You want to express your love for him. You love the people he loves. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. He's given us a spirit which gives us life, which then produces fruit, which part of that fruit is love. It's not, oh, I'm saved, therefore I don't have to love. No, it's all interrelated. You know you have the spirit because you love. You love because you know you have the spirit. It is an interaction. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son into to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. This is a tricky one because in reality sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're so afraid of what God is going to do or not do that we're never convinced that he fully loves us. And even though the scriptures always say that nothing will separate us from the love of God, he's saying once you've experienced that and once you understand that, then we know and believe the love of God. We're no longer worried about it. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves judgment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, any child understands this. They're never quite sure how much my parents love me versus how bad I did. 
And so sometimes they won't say things because they're afraid the relationship will be somehow affected, and so they won't be quite honest with the parents or whomever. But when you are completed in love, then you understand that you are loved unconditionally. And unconditionally means there's no conditions. You can do nothing or not do anything that will affect the love. We love because he first loved us. Again, our res it's responsive. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Pretty direct. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother. It's not an option. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's what God, through Christ, told us to do. Now, we've talked about the love being the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked that if we don't love, that the love of God doesn't reside in us, and that that love needs to be in action, not just by word. Well, what is love? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is an expose on love. The sad thing is, is that oftentimes, um, the only time that this passage is often read is at a wedding. And while at a wedding we're talking about love, we're not just talking about the love between a husband and a wife, but amongst God's people. And so first off, Paul is going to talk about how excellent and prim primary love is. If I speak with the tongues of men or, and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And you've heard those people. They just yap and yap and yap, and they want to hear themselves. But, but they know, you know what, what they're saying isn't because they care for you, it's because they want to be right or they want to whatever. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now this is a scary passage to me. Because there are a lot of people, and I especially think pastors in particular, who think that we've done a whole lot for God. And that when we get to the beam of Christ, that he's going to just give us so many blessings and awards and credentials because, after all, we serve the Lord. But if you didn't love while you were doing it, it accomplished you nothing. It didn't say you're not going to heaven. It just didn't say you're not getting all the things you thought you were getting because you thought you were so awesome of a, a leader. Then he goes and he describes what love is. Love is patient. Why does he have to start with that one? But you know, and, 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 it's, and it's obvious, the more you love somebody, the more patient you are with them. 
Next time you go to a restaurant, and if you have grandchildren, let's say, and there's a child in the restaurant that's not yours, starts crying and screaming, you get irritated and go, when are they going to shut that kid up? Why don't they just go? But if it's your grandchild, oh, they, they didn't get a good nap. They, they just aren't feeling good. They're feeling a little... We're, we're giving excuses because we're patient with, because we love them. The kid that's screaming, just he's irritated me. We're much more patient with those that we love. Love is kind. Again, it's an expression. You can be mean. It doesn't mean that, that that's part of love. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Now, when, you, when I read this, initially, I, it kind of bugs me because I think of that God is jealous for us. And so the term jealous feels uncomfortable because if you love something, you want... You want but the jealous here is kind of envy. You don't envy. And so when something goes well, it's like, well, why did that happen to them? Why didn't it happen to me? You're not envious. You're not jealous of the good blessings that God gives. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. You know those type of people who they, they think more highly of themselves than that, and they're talking about how wonderful they are? Again, when you're making it about you, you're not loving because it's not about you. Does not act unbecomingly. Society could kind of learn from that one. We becoming unbecoming. You act appropriately to to the situation. It does not seek its own. It's not about me. It's about your needs. It's not about oh, I provided for you because I saw you and I loved you. Now what are you going to say good about me? It's not about me. I don't. It's not about seeking my own. is not provoked. You can't be married 30 days, and I bet you can't be married six hours, but you can't be married 30 days and not know about love being provoked. Because one of the things that we all do as husbands and wives is push buttons. And one of the things that I tell people and and when I counsel them, and and I can't say I've done it, early in my ministry, but the last several years, is one of the questions I ask people who are considering getting married is, do you love that person more than winning? Because it seems in the context of marriage, all that we ever care about is winning. Winning the argument, winning the whatever. And then we take out the thermonuclear warheads and crash it down on you so that we win the argument. We provoke one another. That's not love. That's being arrogant, seeking yourself, seeking whatever. So, some practical advice. The next time you're, whether it's spouses or parents and children or whatever, maybe just take a deep breath and don't respond. Just, okay, they hit me with that one. 
Great shock. And don't respond. I know I'm, I, 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 I know. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now I'm, I, I, I hit, I'm going to hit you ladies a little more because quite frankly, we guys, we mess up more than you ladies do. Okay? So. But I, I don't know how many times I've heard where somebody will say, they did such and such, and they ask for forgiveness, which is kind of a rare exception, but they actually do. So you think, okay, I've been forgiven. And then something happens, and you, and then a wife has greater memory than the elephant. Remember in 1972, I, it was May 4th, 1972, we were at Ralph's in the produce aisle, and you said X. And you go, I thought you forgave me. Does not keep score. Does not take into account wrong suffered. It's like Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, I, I married a lame brain husband. My fault, because I said yes. I'm not going to account his lame brainness. I'm going to forgive him. I'm not going to keep score. Does not rejoice in earned righteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Again, when, when people are, are doing, acting in a way that is not proper for we believers to act, it's not a matter of saying, okay, I'm, I'm better than they are because I don't do that sin. You don't rejoice over that. You rejoice with the truth. Bears all things. Again, wish they'd have had a mod better modifier. Bears the important things or the minor things or the things that you're able to bear. But love bears all things. It believes all things. Now, believes all things doesn't mean that I believe a lie. It believes that I know best that God is still in control and God is going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. I believe in what God is doing, not in that. Hopes all things. You hope that God will intercede. Endures all things. See, love is not a 10-yard sprint. It's not even a 100-yard dash. Or I guess in today's world, a 100-meter dash. It is far greater than a marathon. It endures all things. Does it endure some of the things? It endures all things. Love never fails. You may not see the results, but love never fails. Kind of like with love, kind of like the, the teacher. Sometimes a teacher will never know what kind of impact they had on their students' lives. Because most of the time the students show up, they leave, they whatever, and you have no clue. But there are those teachers who have an impact on their students' lives. 
And that student may not even know it until they become older in life. And there's not a time for you to express it. In the same way with love, you might say, well, I love that person, and all I got back was grief and heartache, and it just didn't change. You haven't seen the end yet. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. He's basically saying, children love and response to relationship. I love my mommy. I love my daddy. They provide for me. They do whatever. I'm not too sure about other people. But then as they grow, Paul's saying, I'm not loving like the child. I'm not loving childishly. I'm not loving because you love me. I'm loving the way Christ did. He loved me before I loved him. And I can have so much confidence in the love of God that I can risk loving you and you never love me back. For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that then I will be know it fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abides these three. But the greatest of these is love. He ends like he began. The greatest is love. It only takes a little faith to move a mountain. But there will come a time when there is no faith required. But God is love. And when we dwell in his presence, we will not only see that love more clearly, but it will radiate within ourselves more clearly. Love is eternal, not temporary. Faith and hope are temporary. So, if you have a choice between faith, hope, and love, Paul's saying, choose love. Because love's eternal. Because love, no matter how much faith you may have, if you don't have love, doesn't accomplish anything. We told, he's described the primacy of love. He's told us about love. And John has showed us we must love one another. I want to end with a little story. It's not my story. I heard it by a gentleman by the name of Rabbi Zacharias. And it wasn't originated by him. He gave attribution to someone else. I would almost call it a parable because it teaches a spiritual truth and I'm going to use it in a context different than he used it, which again allows me to think of it as a parable. And Jesus taught in parables. So I think if he did, that's an excellent way to teach. The story goes like this. There's a traveler in a barren desert land, and he's thirsty. And he comes to this place where there is a mechanical pump for water. And he goes and he starts doing the lever on the pump and all he hears is clanging of metal on metal and no water comes out. 
And he looks and see a cup. And in the cup, there's paper written in it. So he pulls it out, and it says instruction. And it says, buried beneath the spigot of the pump is a bottle of water. Dig it out. Don't drink it. Pour it in the pump. Then pump the pump, and you'll get as much water as you want and need. Fill all of the bottles that you have. But don't drink the water in the bottle first. Because if you do, you will thirst again. And after you have produced all this water, fill the bottle up with water and place it back into the ground. Because if you drink the water first, or if you don't fill the water and place it back, then future travelers, will be thirsty. The Bible is our instruction. It tells us who God is and our relationship with Him and how we can tell how we're succeeding on that path. And all too often we are like the traveler who, because of our love for self, we drink the bottle of water without caring about the instruction, which doesn't ultimately benefit us because we will thirst again. But even more damaging than that, we prevent future travelers from being filled and not being thirsty. All too often, the church has been the traveler who has drank the water and not cared about the next generation or the next traveler. We need to take the instructions of the Lord seriously for ourselves and for future travelers. Not only that, God loved us. Not that we might say, it's all about me, Lord, fill me up. But it's, Lord, you love me, and you love you, and you, and you, and you. And all of us together are just going to express through the instruction of the love of God to one another. Because God loves me, big deal. But God loves so we also ought to love one another. And God and all the people said.